0: presented by at&t connecting changes everything
1: it's brand new season two
3: Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.
1: Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking.
4: Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in. I'm Jonathan Strickland.
5: I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And
4: I'm Joe McCormick. So, you know, we've talked a lot on this show about meeting our energy needs in various ways. We've talked about renewable energy. We've talked about uh, alternatives to using uh, petroleum-based energy.
6: We've talked about our old friend coal.
4: Yeah, we have. We've talked about uh, fusion as a potential future energy source, should we ever really solve that problem. There, There are some promising... Uh, scientific experiments that could lead to fusion one day being a real contender. But for now, it's still in, very much in that sort of theoretical and 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 experimental stage.
6: But Jonathan, what's the opposite of fusion?
4: Uh, well, let's see. There's, you mean like jazz fusion? I'd say punk, really, is kind of the opposite of fusion. Uh, I don't know about that. I'd yeah, say the
6: opposite of fusion is probably like country western music.
4: That's but that's a fusion of country and western. Okay, no, God, we're...
5: guys, I think we're getting off topic. Oh,
4: I, I think I think you <laughs> I think what you what you meant was fission, right? Fission. fission. Yes. So it's the fusing fusing two things to become a new one thing. You're taking one thing and splitting it up into two things.
5: Although I think that, that another episode in the future about the future of musical fusion. Yeah. <laughs> so we can, oh, can yeah. go sure. there and have
4: our discussion about jazz fusion and yes. country western music. No, today we're going to talk about fission. Yeah, nuclear, nuclear fission.
6: fission. The standard regular old fission, which is great because we already know how to do it. It, yeah, It works yeah. today.
4: Yeah. In fact, we don't even have to be around for it to happen. But
5: Well, so why are we talking about it if it already works today?
4: Specifically because while nuclear power is certainly something we can tap into, it comes with a pretty big drawback.
6: Yeah. Uh, so nuclear power has no direct carbon emissions. It's very productive. It's very powerful. And it's ready to go today. These are all really, really great things about nuclear power. So really why would anybody be opposed to nuclear power? There's essentially one main reason.
4: Yeah, the stuff that's left over after you have created your nuclear reactions to heat up water to turn turbines because remember ultimately that's what we're talking about is that the nuclear power is just used to A generate method heat
5: of generating heat exactly. to generate turbine. Spinning. Yeah,
4: you're just making steam is all you're really doing. It's the same sort of thing as with steam engines. It's just now you're, you've are you souped it up. Well,
5: Yeah, and the problem here actually isn't always just what's left behind, but the fuel in general yeah, is what true. people yeah. tend to have a problem with. Because as it turns out, radioactive stuff, in addition to creating a lot of steam very efficiently, is not safe.
4: Yeah, it's not no. good Not good for things what are living you to be around it. You should not
5: juggle it. No. Do not play with a super happy fun ball.
4: No, do not, do not look at No. no super no. happy fun ball.
6: So this is the problem we're going to talk about today. Actually, over the next two podcasts, this is going to be yeah. a two-parter. Today yeah. is part one where we're going to talk about what's the problem with nuclear waste because it is very much a future problem. Yep. Uh, and then on the next podcast, we're going to talk about proposed solutions. What What are you going to do about it? Today, we decided to just devote this to talking about what the problem is and sort of looking at what it means for us. So what is radioactive waste and how is it produced? And are are there different kinds of radioactive waste?
4: There are absolutely different kinds of radioactive waste. Uh so you know we're talking about radioactive stuff. This is stuff that specifically ionizing radiation stuff that is uh, uh potentially harmful because it can cause electrons to fly off of atoms and eventually cause things like mutations and other issues. We'll go into more about that in a little bit. But specifically, the uh, the type that most people are absolutely terrified of is uh, called high level waste, which can sometimes also uh, include spent nuclear fuel, although generally speaking, they people tend to separate the two as two separate things, but they both are extremely dangerous.
5: Uh, Right. The spent fuel is possibly even more dangerous. But
4: yeah, it's it's but
5: but neither of them, again, are things you want to juggle.
4: Right. So spent nuclear fuel is exactly what it sounds like. It's it's when you have used these nuclear rods or whatever format the nuclear fuel has come into. uh, It has lost enough of its reactive Nature So there's no longer as efficiently heating up water to super high temperatures. So you need to replace it with new fuel. Uh, that spent nuclear fuel is pretty dangerous. Now, some countries will end up trying to reprocess that spent nuclear fuel to recapture some of the uranium and plutonium that's in it, because as it turns out, there's quite a bit of unused or unburnt fuel in those fuel rods. Uh, we're talking around 98% of the fuel being unused. So the processing, the reprocessing of this ends up creating uh, a mixture of uranium and plutonium. And then you have this leftover stuff. About 3% of it is completely leftover that you can't do anything with. It's called high-level waste. Uh, and while it only makes up 3% of uh, of the actual volume of stuff, it makes up 95% of the radioactivity of the nuclear waste that we generally talk about, like, what are we going to do with this stuff? So this is the really super dangerous stuff.
6: So what are the attributes of this this high level waste or spent nuclear fuel if you're going to group them together or we'll just today group them together because they're both there's the same sort of problem. It, uh, they're, they're both. Very radioactive and very hot. Yes. And we produce a kind of significant amount of it when you combine all of our nuclear facilities together.
4: Right. Especially uh, we're, we're mainly going to be talking about the United States in these podcasts. But keep in mind that, of course, the United States is not the only country using nuclear power. There are a lot of countries that do. And all of the countries have to consider what are they going to do with this nuclear waste uh once once it starts to accumulate what do you do with it uh now for the most part the first thing we we do is we end up using uh water to help shield uh to well one to cool it and two to shield us from the radioactivity water as it turns out is a really good shield if you have a lot of it so <laughs> it turns <laughs> out that uh removing high level waste from uh spent nuclear fuel uh, usually you have to do it underwater and then you store it in a pool of water. And you were talking about for spent nuclear fuel, you would want to s- store it in water for about, oh, 50 years before you <laughs> do anything else with it.
5: Yeah, the high-level waste can be stored for as little as only five. Yeah,
4: and then put into dry cask containers.
5: Uh, usually the pools of water also contain some kind of shielding material like right. boron that will help uh, help absorb any free
4: Right. Any, any free particles that are ad- emitted through this, because right. keep in mind the nuclear reactions we're talking about, the reason why uh, this is uh, a good fuel source is the fact that once you start a reaction, it helps sustain itself. Right. It gives off the particles that continue to allow the unspent fuel to then react. It becomes a chain reaction. And in fact, if you do not control this chain reaction, that's when you go into something like a nuclear meltdown, which we have all pretty much agreed is what we would call a bad thing.
5: Yes. So not ungood. Um. But yeah. So after five years, you can take the high-level wastes and uh, store them in these dry, ventilated steel containers that are filled with inert gases, something like helium. Um. And then you can place those in concrete containers. That's called your your dry containment.
4: Yeah. And uh, ultimately, the idea that uh, that most people came into agreement on several decades ago, was that you would move this stuff to a geological repository, which essentially means a really deep hole in the ground where it would be safe from everything else. But we'll have more to say about that a little bit later.
5: And just for the record, as of 2009, each one of these dry casks cost about a million bucks to create. Yeah.
4: So that's that's your high level waste. Wow. That's that's just one of several types of waste that we haven't even covered the other types yet.
6: Yeah, we're about to. So keep in mind that that high level waste that's the main thing people are worried about. It, right. it is very radioactive, very dangerous. You don't want to get near it, but it's only about 3% of the volume of the total waste yep. we create. So it, there's a there's a much larger group of things we create that are somewhat radioactive, the lower level waste. you got intermediate level waste and low level waste. Yep. And this comes from the fact that radioactivity, uh, you you might say, is sort of like cooties (laughs) on the playground. (laughs)
5: Deadly, deadly cooties. You
4: certainly have said that because it says it in the notes.
6: (laughs) Uh, So you take a... Very radioactive object, like some uh, plutonium core, okay? And then you expose that to a second object. Just imagine it is, I don't know, a a t shirt.
4: Okay. Okay.
6: So that second object can then actually become dangerous in itself, even after you've removed it from the plutonium core. Why is that? Well, there are a couple of reasons. I think the main one is that tiny radioactive particles or radioactive dust can attach itself to this second object. Sure. This so T-shirt, then, yes. Yeah, you might have particles that are so small you can't see them, but these particles are radioactive and they're still capable of, of shooting out these uh, these tiny you know uh, ionizing radiation sure. that can do major damage to you. The other thing is that some types of objects, when they're bombarded with radioactivity, can become radioactive themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, so some of the atoms within them will change to radioactive isotopes that can then turn around and start giving off their own radiation. And Oof. that's bad news also. Yeah. Though I think that's less often a concern than the previous. The main one you're talking about is these radioactive particles, the yeah. dust. yeah. So these secondary objects like this make up these lower level waste, this intermediate waste, low level waste that represent the majority of what's produced by nuclear power generation. And these waste products can include all kinds of stuff from like old parts of the reactor sure. or the cooling assembly to tools or protective clothes and shieldings, masks, gloves, yeah. all kinds of stuff that's been around. Other things that are radioactive.
4: Yeah, a general rule of thumb is the longer it's been in contact with the radioactive source, the more likely it's going to be an intermediary level waste rather than a low level waste, whereas things that have had uh, limited contact tend to fall into the low level waste. That's just a general rule of thumb. It doesn't necessarily apply in every case, but something like, say, a filter. Would be intermediary because it had more consistent contact with the source of radiation. Whereas, a a suit that was worn by someone who had to do some maintenance within a, an area that had some radioactivity might be considered low level because while it had exposure, it was uh, it was only on one occasion and it was limited. But you still have to classify it as waste that needs to be dealt with in a particular way.
5: Oh, right. Because at a certain point, if you expose that T-shirt to another T-shirt, you've got another radioactive T-shirt. Yeah. And, then and, it's and eventually
4: just that's going to get exposed to somebody. Radioactive
5: you know, T-shirts all the way down.
4: Probably through a T-shirt <laughs> cannon of some sort. Yeah. At an um, outdoor festival. Oh, no.
5: It's, it's, oh, no. Yeah. That,
4: <laughs> bringing, bringing some pre-show discussion into the show. <laughs> that's
5: what I'm doing right now, folks. Um, But that's actually not all, folks. There are other kinds of Radioactive byproducts of this entire nuclear energy equation. You've also got basic stuff that was created when the raw nuclear materials were taken out of the ground. For example, uranium mill tailings, which is a sand-like byproduct of mining Uranium It can contain flecks of radium, uranium, thorium, and lots of other hazardous stuff. And, uh, and and like all of this other waste, it can contaminate the local air or water or nearby objects. It produces gamma radiation. And, you know, generally, it really does take some care and concern to be disposed of properly. But we'll talk more about that disposal process a little bit later.
4: Right. And one other type I want to mention, which is really only uh, uh, recognized by the United States, is transuranic or transuranic waste, which is essentially waste that involves uh, uh, elements with atomic numbers higher than uranium. It's usually produced as a byproduct of uh, nuclear weapons research or laboratory research. It can also come from nuclear power. Uh, We're talking mostly about man-made elements at this point. But that's another uh, type of nuclear waste that doesn't easily fall into these other categories. Well, uh, it and se- seems like United it States. could
6: overlap with them, right? Certainly, I mean, if there's some plutonium in it, isn't it technically transuranic? Uh,
4: it's It certainly can overlap. Uh, it's And again, it's one of those designations that we find in the United States, but not in other countries. It's going to come into play when we talk about geologic uh, repositories and, and whether or not we have any working ones currently.
6: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So We've separated the nuclear waste out into these categories, but we should probably talk about how dangerous is it? Like, should we be worried?
4: Well, all right. Should we be worried in general? Uh, I mean, you don't need to lose sleep tonight.
5: Yeah, d- day to day, you're all right. Yeah. Let
6: Let me try to approach that again. <laughs> um, let's say you walk into a room with some high level waste in it, and you just stand there for ten minutes. Okay, that's, should you be worried? Yes,
4: you should. You should. First of all, you should be worried about anyone who told you that was a good idea, because that person does not like you. No. Um. The in fact, the the whole. Concept of the danger of of radiation uh, involves the level of radioactive material, the amount of time that you have spent in uh, exposed to said material, and the the distance between you and said material. But before we get into that, let's just let's just talk about plutonium. All right, just using plutonium as an example. Now, uh, there is uh, there are a lot of people who say that plutonium is the most toxic substance
6: on Earth. I'd kind of maybe take issue with that because there are a lot of different ways you can measure toxicity and plutonium. I mean, there are different isotopes of plutonium. Some are much more dangerous than others. If someone
4: were to give you a big old bowl of plutonium dust and say, a spoon and say, do you want to ingest this or do you want to say that it's the most toxic stuff in the universe? I think you'd you'd go with the second one.
6: Well, what if somebody (laughs) gave you a big bowl of plutonium dust and also gave you a big bowl of botulinum toxin?
4: And, and said what? That you have to eat whichever one, or one the is? Other. <laughs>
5: yeah, whichever is the least toxic.
4: I mean, I guess it depends on whether or not there are any marshmallows in
6: either of them at that uh, point. I you know.
4: That's usually how I make my decision on all cereal-based well, products.
6: Okay, no, I'm sorry. my I should take my piddling objection aside. In any case, whatever it is, you, you don't want to mess around with plutonium. No,
4: no, breathing in plutonium dust significantly increases your chances of developing lung cancer later. Now, when I say significantly increases your chances, keep in mind, that does not mean you will definitely develop lung cancer. It also doesn't mean that if you do develop lung cancer, that was specifically because you breathed in plutonium particles. There may be other contributing factors that led to that, uh, including inherited ones, whether or not you're a smoker, other issues like that. So the point being that statistics are tricky things, and you have to keep that in mind whenever you're talking about any statistical increase. But it does mean that you are really bringing, putting yourself in severe danger by being in contact with that stuff. It's not good for you. Um, and uh,
5: yeah, p- part of the problem there is how long how long these things last right. in the environment. Um, for example, plutonium two thirty nine half of any given bit of the stuff that we handle today will still be harmful in twenty four thousand years.
4: Yeah, so you know, obviously, much worse than something like secondhand smoke. You know, this is something that is persistent. And unless you have a way of containing it well away from humans, uh, it's going to potentially cause some really big problems.
6: Right. So you don't have to worry just about not being in the same room with it yourself. You have to worry about a thousand generations down the road not being in the same room.
4: With yeah. It. Right. Then there's radiation sickness, which not a fun thing to talk about but the severity of radiation sickness depends upon how much radiation you've absorbed. And it's not common, but it is serious and often fatal depending upon the exposure. So in your example of... Walking unprotected into a room filled with high-level waste, that exposure would be pretty severe, specifically and getting more severe every moment you spend in contact with that stuff. So the determining factors are, like I said, the strength of the radiated energy, which is quite high with high-level waste, uh, how much distance was between you and the radiation source. Some parts of our body are more sensitive to radiation than other parts of our body, like the, the gastrointestinal tract is really sensitive, as is bone marrow. Um, Early symptoms are really unpleasant. They include nausea and vomiting. Uh, Those symptoms will set up uh, pretty much in a a correlation with how much exposure you had. So the more exposure you had, the earlier the symptoms will show up. Um, If it was a really severe case, then you might be very sick within within an, an hour or two at most. Uh, Other cases where you might have had exposure, but it wasn't as severe, it may take a couple of days before any symptoms show up. Um, We measure these radiation dosages in a couple of different ways. There are units that we call grays. Uh, An x-ray tends to be less than 0.1 grays. It's also generally focused on a small area of the body, an x-ray is, so it ends up being uh, less of a a threat than, say, an all-body exposure of some powerful uh, radioactive source. Also,
5: why they give you that fancy lead bib.
4: Yeah. So again, it mm. it really limits the area that is exposed to this sort of thing. Um, and then your symptoms of radiation sickness will usually appear only after the entire body has absorbed one gray or more of radioact- radioactivity. Doses greater than six gray are usually not treatable and typically lead to death within two weeks. Now, there's also another unit called the sievert, which you may have heard of. Now, this is a unit of dose equivalent, which is used to relate the different effects from various radiation types on the human body. So it accounts for a quality factor, which is the type of radiation, and a weighting factor, which was the type of tissue affected. It's a little more specific than grays, in other
6: words. You should be getting the sense that not all radioactivity is the same. And not all radioactivity exposure will have the same effect on your body. Right. And, so it's kind of hard to predict in certain cases what exactly is going to happen to you. But with this high-level waste, we know it is very dangerous. This, yeah. is,
4: this is also why it's important to know the difference between ionizing radiation and non-ionizing radiation. Yeah. So high-level waste, we're talking ionizing radiation. This is dangerous stuff. But there's other types of radiation that is non-ionizing. For example, radio waves. So... Radio waves, like the kind that come from a cell phone tower, are not ionizing radiation. It's a it. They both radiate energy, but they are two different types of radiation and should not be confused. All right, so we've established there are different types of radiation. Uh, that we've established there are different types of radioactive waste, all of which we need to figure out what to do with them. So, what do we do with them? What what typically is done with this stuff?
6: Well, fortunately, we don't have to worry all that much I mean, we st- we still do have to be careful but we don't have to worry all that much about the lower level wastes yes. they're not intensely dangerous you can typically just sort of bury them in a, a what's called a civil nuclear waste facility
4: yeah it's not that much different from say a dump
5: yeah it's, it's a pit or a trench yep basically it's covered with soil most of the time yep
4: so you you know as long as I it's... mean you might
5: put a sign up that's like hey don't eat the soil right but, right.
4: Yeah, it's it's generally considered to be, uh, you know, s- safe mm-hmm. within the realm of of safety. It's it's in there. So
6: it also, I think, typically what's considered lower level waste also has a shorter lifespan. Right. That it doesn't remain dangerous as long. Right. 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 And also, uh,
4: while while it's very common for us to see these in these these pits or trenches. Uh, particularly in the United States some other countries actually put low level waste in depositories so finland and sweden both have depositories where they put low level and intermediate level waste um which is that's going an extra mile for safety or at least an extra several hundred meters um mile might be generous but it's uh you know it's it's going a, a step further closer to what has been proposed for high level waste but it's um it's interesting to me that there are countries that are taking that extra step instead of uh, instead of simply burying it, uh, which, from what we can tell, seems to be adequate.
5: Mm-hmm. Uh, going up a little bit from that, you've got the disposal of byproducts like tailings, which is somewhere in between this low level and what we're going to talk about in a moment, which is the high level. Um, now, Now, tailings here in the United States... 24 of the 26 uranium milling sites here are inactive and are currently the responsibility of the Department of Energy. Um, So they are the ones that are taking all of these steps for us rather than the private nuclear companies that may have opened the mines to begin with. So they set up these sites that use uh, clay and rock to prevent seepage and, uh, you know, put up signs and fences and legal land use restrictions. Uh, there's an actual EPA webpage that recommends that you know really you should not misuse tailings for construction material or backfill around buildings. Well, that's
4: that's a good note. Thanks, Thanks for the tip. Yeah.
5: <laughs> um. So so people aren't people aren't highly concerned about them. Is is all I'm saying. You know, like you can gotcha. you can go a few steps below what we're about to talk about, which is that high level waste. Right. Yeah.
6: So the high level waste we don't want to. Be too much of a downer because there are certainly ways that people have talked about dealing with this. Yes, what are those ways? Well, you know, we
4: talked about how with low-level waste, the the solution was to bury it. Yeah, all right, turn that up to eleven, and that's kind of the 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 most agreed upon method for long-term uh, solution to high-level waste problems. And w- the reason why you need a long-term
5: solution is that twenty-four thousand years or so that that's we that's plutonium too. Earlier, There's there right. are
4: other ones that have. That, that could be potentially dangerous for you know, like a hundred thousand years. That's a long time, yeah, right?
5: And it's difficult to build something out. Especially, I mean, right now most high-level waste is stored. I think we already mentioned on-site at nuclear facilities around any given country.
4: Yeah. So if you have a nuclear plant that is in operation somewhere in that general area, is also their containment site for all the high-level waste and spent nuclear fuel that they're no that are not trying to to you know. Uh,
5: repurpose in any way. Uh, Right. But it would be highly impractical to build at each of these nuclear sites something so deep going and expensive that you would be able to more permanently house this dangerous material. So overall, it is agreed upon that the best way to go about storing nuclear, the high level nuclear stuff would be a centralized geological repository.
4: And part of that is because, one, identifying such a site, it takes time and effort, figuring out what sites are going to meet the requirements so that, you know, in 100,000 years time, it will still, in theory, be perfectly safe or at least be safely containing the high level waste. Secondly, uh, you have to figure out that it's much better to have a centralized location, uh, especially for something that could be a tempting target For an organization that wants to get its hands on nuclear material, it'd be better to have that all in a place where you could have the most maximum security possible in that one location, as opposed to a bunch of tempting targets that are all spread out all over the place, Yeah, where some of them may be more susceptible than others. This is a terrifying idea, but it's one that has to be taken into consideration. It's one of the things that factored into the idea of having these centralized geological repositories. So... It would need to be buried really deep underground. We're talking several hundred meters, several like a thousand feet or so maybe around that area. Some of them are deeper. Some of them are a little less deep than that. But that's generally speaking what we're looking at. Uh, It needs to have a lot of reinforcement. Uh, We're talking about uh, some shielding like steel and concrete and maybe water even, although that's very dangerous. You don't want—
6: Yeah, you don't want this leaking into the groundwater. Right.
4: You don't want to contaminate any groundwater whatsoever. You don't want to irradiate the groundwater because that could then affect all sorts of life forms, right? Mm
2: -hmm.
4: Uh, Whether today or down the road. So you want to try and uh, make sure that it's airtight, watertight. You don't want any uh, radioactive dust to get out of it. You don't want any water to get into it. You want to make sure that it's really secure from all sorts of uh, of intrusions, whether human or otherwise. And then there's there's the social factor, the social problem, the the political problem of geological repositories. So you have all these considerations you have to make in order to even find a site that's going to look useful. Then you have to convince people that this is a good idea and it should be put there, which is very hard to do for the people who live in the general vicinity of said proposed site.
5: Oh, yeah. It's, it's hard to even convince people to let you build a nuclear facility, period, yeah. in their generalized neighborhood. And that's like, like, you're going to get cheaper energy. That'll be awesome for you. And right. this is just like your fish could have three eyes.
4: Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, I mean, it, it's it's an understandable fear in the sense that radiation is scary, right? We cannot see it, but we know it affects us. You know, we cannot we cannot actually see little wavy lines coming out of this stuff that looks just like rocks to us. Yeah, yeah. You know, or or just a canister of something or a big concrete uh, container. We can't see anything from it, and yet it can kill us. So,
5: and it's it's really scientifically complicated. It's I mean, it kind of goes along the lines of stuff that we don't understand is a lot scarier to us. And I think that people, you know, see things in pop culture about Godzilla or Mary Curie or you know whatever it is right. and get extra freaked out. I mean, not that it's not something that deserves to be freaked out about.
4: I think we had a big turnaround in our reaction. Like, if you look at those early 1940s things like uh, the the miracle radiation and how it's going to make
6: your world a better place and then i feel like it's earlier than the 40s with the i mean when when were people drinking radium water (laughs) don't know about that but radiation was really that
4: that became a popular thing in the 40s hold on
6: i'm googling but by the by
4: the 50s you get into the duck and cover stage right hold Uh,
6: on let's see in the early 1900s radioactive water was quite the rave yeah, oh, I'm sure go. I'm sure it got glowing reviews.
5: Oh, no. At uh, any rate. Or, or like painting the insides of your watch with radium so that yeah, they would glow. Right. Or et cetera.
4: Yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of things where there was a sort of this sort of uh, craze about the stuff until we started to more understand the potential hazards. So at any rate, it suffers from the not in my backyard problem, also known as NIMBY, where people who people may even say, I completely agree that we need this. But I don't agree that we need it in my backyard.
6: Yeah, some somebody else do it. Yeah. Okay, so we all I think pretty much agree. Nuclear power, great, you know, at least potentially. The, yeah, yeah. At the same time, has this really, really serious problem. Yep. So we, we let's just do something about it. Let's let's build all of the geological repositories we can. How many do we already have for high level waste? Yeah, zero. Uh yeah, uh zero that by the way
4: that's that's around the world that's global. that's not yeah. just the United States, so we got to start with the proposed geologic geological repository yeah. for high level waste. There's the one States. big one, yeah, the Yucca Mountain in Nevada. that was the big one, and I say was because it's still kind of in limbo right now.
5: We'll get into that in a moment. Yeah.
4: The mountain's not in limbo, Mountains still in Nevada, but the proposed process of actually turning it into a repository. Limbo City
5: could be like Welcome to Nightville, like a little bit in limbo. I mean, I haven't been there. It
4: might be right. So um, uh, there I do not know if there's a sentient glow cloud over Yucca Mountain. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me at this point. But it's been uh, the intended repository for the U.S. since the 1980s. And the thing is that Nevada state representatives have really resisted this because the citizens of Nevada really don't like the idea of a giant nuclear waste dump in their state no matter how you how you define it. Whether you say, look, this is a facility that's meant to safely have all this, all the geological uh features are ideal for this kind of thing, it's a different story when you live 120 kilometers away. You know, Las Vegas is like within that distance. And at the time when it was proposed, Las Vegas was a smaller city than it is today, but now it's it's relatively large. So you've got a very powerful political resistance to putting it there. Um, So meanwhile, to make matters more complicated, might as well say this now, you've got an equally powerful political uh, uh, push for it to be established there because you've got all these other nuclear power plants spread across the United States, each of which has to have a containment facility for those high level wastes and spent nuclear fuel. They don't want to keep that indefinitely. They're not supposed to keep it indefinitely. That stuff is meant to go to a geological repository. So they put political pressure for Yucca Mountain to become one of these things. So you've got the state of Nevada resisting. You've got other states with existing nuclear facilities saying, no, we have to do this. That's what we agreed upon. That was the agreement. Let's do it. Um, And it's a big political nightmare uh, for, for very legitimate reasons. Like we said, I mean, people are afraid of this stuff because it's scary. So even if Yucca Mountain got com- total clearance for licensing of becoming a geological repository, uh, we would not be using it until 2020 at the earliest. And I don't think it's going to happen at all. I don't think we're going to see it ever be used as a repository. But- oh,
5: oh, okay. I, I looked into the full backstory of, of the Yucca Mountain thing because it's such a interesting idea. And I... I I think it's a pretty good idea, but I don't live in Las Vegas, so I mean, you know. Yeah, it's
4: it's a lot easier for us to say it because we live. From in Georgia. Yeah. Yeah, A couple (laughs) thousand miles away makes it a lot easier.
5: But. OK, so way back in 1983, a bunch of private nuclear energy companies started working together to, to help create one of these permanent centralized disposal sites. Okay? Right. Um, and meanwhile, on the political side, Congress approved research into placing a facility at Yucca Mountain um, among nine total potential sites in 1987. That whole thing kicked off this multi-decade debate that Jonathan's been talking about, about whether the good people of Nevada would actually want such a thing and whether we had the money to pour into a 10,000-year safe $90 billion site of this type. In 2002, Yucca was designated as the best possible site for a disposal facility. But soon after, in 2008, the Obama administration started working to shut the whole thing down because of this whole not in my backyard and or funding debate stuff that was going on. Uh, and then in 2010, the Department of Energy stopped the entire process of attempting to license the site. Yeah. Um,
4: then the Atomic Safety and Licensing Board said, uh, you can't do that uh, by law. You can't just stop this you have to actually pass legislation one way or the other uh you can't you can't be doing something that you've been legally bound to do and then say i'm not doing it anymore so that essentially we're talking about different government offices fighting with each other
5: which always leads to terrific things um Finally, in 2013, the D.C. Court of Appeals, Washington, D.C., that would be ruled that the process had to go forward, legally speaking, being that the uh, temporary 30-year safe facilities that are currently holding our nation's nuclear waste are insufficient um, and cannot be extended for longer use without a really costly, detailed analysis of the potential damage that doing so will cause.
4: Right. If we, if you know, the the facilities that nuclear waste is in. Right now, those weren't meant to be permanent homes for that stuff, right? They were meant to be this little temporary holding ground until we had a centralized geological repository where everything would go, and it was meant to be there uh, for ten thousand years. We'll talk more about that ten thousand year thing in a little bit too. So,
6: not a little bit in the next
4: podcast. In the next podcast, we'll talk about it. Yeah, I'm sorry, um, but it's you know that's that's certainly one of the big tripping points of this whole process is the idea of having a facility where you have to designate it being safe for 10,000 years. That's a tough thing. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's this is, like I said, a, a big political problem as well as a technical problem as well as a health hazard. I mean, there, there, multiple things coming into play here. So yeah, I mean, what are we going to do? I mean, we've got all these states that all have very different ideas about what needs to happen. You've got the states where... The nuclear waste currently resides and cannot legally stay there because the facilities that were built for them were not meant to be permanent ones.
6: I think a lot of people honestly don't even realize it's there. Yeah. Oh, I mean, sure. just yeah. have no idea. I think a lot of people assume we already have facilities like Yucca Mountain is supposed to be.
4: Yeah. And <laughs> uh, we will talk more about all of that in our next episode, where we'll go into more detail about the repositories that do exist here in the world. Um, They're including one that exists in the United States, but is not a high-level waste repository. There are no high-level waste repositories out there. Not okay. yet, anyway. Some of them are under consideration in different parts of the world. Some of them are under construction in
6: different parts of the world, but there are none existing yet. Right. We, um We will also talk about some alternative proposals.
5: Yes, there are many alternative proposals out there. Uh, some of them are bad. Yeah but uh, some, but but, but, some of, but some of them have lots and lots of potential and <sighs> and I'm excited at any rate about any of the work being done yeah towards you know not killing us all
4: Some of, of the bad ones poisoning. some of the bad ones have been considered and rejected some of the bad ones have, have been, been practiced, practiced. <laughs> and rejected once people caught on to what was going on. Yeah. Uh, but we'll talk all about that in our next episode, which will be just as cheerful as this one was. So the reason why we even tackled this problem in the first place is that it's actually one we need to solve. And oh, yeah. and while it is a certain certainly a huge challenge and I'm sure I'll I'll stress this again in our next episode, human beings are amazing at overcoming challenges when we put our minds to it. We have to put our minds to it. Is the yes, thing. Yes.
6: So that doesn't and, mean you can just trust somebody to figure it out later.
4: No. No. no, no we have but, to. Yeah. Yeah. Let's not fall back on the someone smarter than me is working on this oh, problem.
5: No. Uh, but but I think that all three people here are pretty huge fans of nuclear energy. At as, least from the uh, sense among, of among the current options. Sure. Yeah. If
4: it's if it's practiced if it's practiced uh you know responsibly, then certainly I think it's a a. A valid means of powering a, a nation. Which you know, means
5: that we need a valid means of
4: taking care of this waste. Cause we do have to acknowledge that the waste is an issue and we have to make sure we, we meet that problem. So we're going to talk more about that in our next episode. Fear not. Uh, we'll be, we'll be continuing this discussion. And uh, if you guys have any suggestions for future topics, we can talk about on forward thinking. Let us know. You can drop us a line on Twitter, uh, Google Plus, or Facebook. Our handle at all three is FW Thinking, and we will talk to you again really
1: soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com.
6: Brought to you by
1: Toyota.